Popular, the podcast that bridges the gap between social media and the people who wonder where the lost art of penmanship went. That was a comment from my aunt, who when we were talking about social media one day said, does anybody have good penmanship anymore? And I thought, well, no, you type everything. I'm Dr. Adrienne Trierbenik. I'm your host. And in case you are hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture and the impact it has on our lives. Today, I am talking to Dr. Tia C.M. Tyree. Dr. Tyree is a professor at Howard University and the program director for the Graduate and Teaching Associates Development Program. Dr. Tyree teaches graduate and undergraduate communications courses with a focus on strategic communications, social media, and African Americans, and her research has included hip-hop, rap, reality television, film, social media, and African-American and female representation in media. She has published several book chapters, peer-reviewed articles. She is the author of a book called The Interesting and Incredibly Long History of American Public Relations. And she is the co-editor of HBCU Experience, the book, and Social Media Pedagogy and Practice. I have worked with Dr. Tyree through a couple of the books I've edited over the years, and her work is one of those things where every time I am exposed to it, I learn a lot. And I come out feeling like, wow, I know nothing (laughs) about this field that I am in. Um, She is one of those people that has the ability to write and to communicate stuff in a way that makes you go, huh, never thought about it like that. She is quite possibly brilliant. Um, I hope that it's okay that I say that. Uh, We're going to talk about her research in social media. We're going to talk about Black Twitter. She's going to explain how social media has sort of manipulated its way into conversations of race and gender and class and talking about representation in mass media. And for those of you who are old school R&B fans, um, you'll want to listen because there's a a nod to a specific person from 90s R&B that when she said it, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice because I was trying very hard to be chill, but I have no chill, y'all. I have no chill, but I was trying really hard. And when she said it, I just, my eyes lit up and it was all I could think about for like the next, I don't know, 24 to 36 hours. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tyree. Hi, Tia. Welcome to Most Popular. Hi, how are you? I'm so excited to talk to you. I know I already said this once, but I just feel like you and I know each other, <laughs> even though Very we've never much met. So, <laughs> um, so scholar circles, right? I know it's it's just an odd an odd position that we're in sometimes because of that. Yeah. Uh, so we're here to talk about the media and your background and how media, public relations, social media, how all of this has played uh, a role in your life. So let's start with really basic stuff. Let's just talk about the concept of the media in air quotes. Um, What does this mean and what do people think it means versus what it might actually be? So I teach a social media class um, at Howard University and we always start out the first, not just week, but the first day kind of laying the foundation of what is traditional media and then what is social media. And in this day and age, we still have to be, you know, very considerate of, of making that line in the sand because they do function completely different. Um, and so when I think of the media, because of my age probably, I definitely <laughs> think that we need to be considerate of the fact that we still have traditional media in the United States and across the world. So we're talking about 
television, newspaper, radio, magazines. Those are the foundational mass media that we know and we we deal with on a daily basis. I'm not sure if I said radio. I hope I did. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we have to make sure that when we're thinking media, that we're thinking traditional media, and then we can have the conversation about the complexities of social media and what that means today in our society and how social media is driving and influencing our traditional media. But for me, it's always important to delineate traditional um, mass media from social media. How do um, like websites and blogs fit into that? So they're absolutely social media, okay. but we have to understand that something like the Huffington Post right. um, has, has become such an important part of who we are and what we do that we almost forget that it is still a news blog that has mm-hmm. kind of morphed into something that we really do a pay attention to. So um, I think it's, it's important to understand that blogs are definitely a part of social media and we need to respect them for their place, but they are influential, but they still are not mass media. So I do an assignment where I have students try and figure out the difference between real news and fake news. And I give them for real news, you know, the, the normal stuff like New York Times, Washington Post, um, routers. I never say that word right, but I I give them that. Reuters. (laughs) Thank you. Reuters. Um, uh, but where they always get hung up is blogs, Huffington Post, um, things that look very news worthy, but are still written by, like you just said, more social media driven culture. Um, can we, Talk a little bit about your background and how you came to this. To to your part? to your education to oh sure teaching. I, I, I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a crazy part of my um, upbringing. Okay, is and again it definitely is is age based. But my mother, um, we grew up in Baltimore. I still live in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and Baltimore. Um, is definitely a major news market. So we have all of the the television stations, and we had the Baltimore Sun. And when I was little, we had the morning sun and the evening sun. Uh. And so when you woke up in the morning, you got the morning newspaper, and when your mother got off work or your father got off work, they got the evening sun. And then you could see all the things that happened during the day. Um, I grew up in a time when the Sunday paper was a huge deal. So you would wait for Sunday, you'd peel apart the newspaper, you'd fight for the comic section. (laughs) Um, I grew up where you woke up in the morning and my mother would turn on the news and that's what you got dressed to. And if you were lucky enough, she'd let you watch cartoons. But we, you came home, you watched the six o'clock news. So my life was Mm -hmm. wrapped around news and media. Um, And that created this love for news and and information, which is why I went to school for broadcast journalism. And after doing about three internships, I realized I don't want to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. But I love this idea of information sharing, and I love the media. And what can I do to still play in this place where I can you know, maximize my writing skills and maximize this connection with people, but not fight for news creation. And I stumbled across across so many public relations professionals in my attempt to be this fledgling journalist. And that's how I literally 
made the transition because I had seen so many public relations people experience kind of them from the opposite side. And I was able to kind of morph into um, a PR professional. And it was a lot of morphing because I didn't start off, you know, the traditional (laughs) way. But um, that's kind of how I got to this point where, you know, news um, and information became such a big part of my life. What kind of public relations did you do? So again, what a circus of a career. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got my, and I love to tell students how I got my first job because I, I tell them that networking is big. Mm-hmm. Um, every job I ever obtained in my entire career is because I knew someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had graduated college, and I tell my students that I, I worked in a record store. They're like, oh, you worked in a record store. I like, know. they existed, right? <laughs> so I managed a record store. I was one of those people that graduated with an incredible GPA but left college without a job. I was very sad and depressed and shopping my resume everywhere. I come home one day from work, and there's this girl sitting in my kitchen talking to my brother, and she says um, she wants to quit her job, but she has to replace herself before she can leave. Hmm. And I'm like, wow, well, what do you do for a living? She says, well, I work for Tony Braxton. I could not <gasps> get my resume fast enough to her. Are you and kidding? I literally, <laughs> I am not kidding. So my first job was actually working to manage Tony Braxton's fan club, and I eventually worked as road manager for her sisters, which turned into working after I finished that, that was like the whole thing you see on television, the red carpets, yeah. the, the flights, the living out of your suitcase. I came home to Baltimore and I worked for a state senator um, who was the first to be expelled in 200 years what? from the state senate. So in that, but I did that for about a year and then I calmed down and worked for um, Booz Allen and Hamilton. And then I ended up working for D.C. government in two different agencies for about 10 years before transitioning into kind of the professoriate. So when I say that I've done music, politics, firm, like a little bit of everything, which makes me, I think, pretty well-rounded in the stories I can bring to the classroom and this kind of understanding that try everything, learn everything, and then make sure that you're maximizing your skills as you go along. That is one of the most fascinating career trajectories. (laughs) But it's why I think I'm so kind of different. Yeah, but I think that's also what makes us good at our jobs, too. You know, when we can bring a little something to the table that shows this is what life is and this is the odd path that we all tend to take sometimes. No. And and that's the thing. We try, and I think we see, at least I do in my office, students who, you know, are so driven and dedicated and and they know what they want to do. And in the back of your mind, you're like, that is probably not the way it's going to go. But you keep going. But you, you keep believing. I mean, because you have to let them understand that life is too unpredictable and you have to be flexible to survive yeah. in the world. So, yes, go for it. Go for your dream. I think I'm living my dream. But in the same breath, understand that the opportunity that comes to your footsteps that may not seem like the right one can catapult you into something that you also never dreamed about. So it's just the flexibility of of this space that we're in is, is valuable to, to recognize. Yeah. One of my other guests said that her best career advice was to say yes to absolutely everything you can 
and see what happens. And I thought that's absolutely. Yeah, I thought that's a good positive approach to it. Um, so how did you transition to academics? What did you what made you make the switch? So the uh, the DC government job I was working with is actually two blocks from Howard University. Mm. And so I would drive by Howard every day. And I was at this kind of middle point in my career. Um, and I think a lot of people who are in PR and they're, they're 10 years in, they start to wonder what's next. And I had and have an incredible mentor who has this way about him of just asking questions. So he would call me up and say, what are you doing? I'm like sitting in my office. No, like, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, working? No, what are you trying to do? And I'm like, I'm not sure I'm trying to do anything. So he would, and you could hear the displeasure that you weren't thinking of being more. Um, and so patients about what I wanted to do and what my thoughts were. So he invited me to teach um, as an adjunct at my alma mater, which is Morgan State University. And I taught for one semester and absolutely fell in love. Yeah. And I decided I tried one more time because, hey, Howard's right next door to where I work. I did it again and fell in love with teaching, and I thought I could do that the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about just transitioning to, you know, obtaining my Ph.D. and hoping for the best. And it just so happened that when I was graduating, the one true PR full-time position that they had at Howard University, the person was transitioning um, to be an, uh, an administrator, and I was able to kind of apply for it and, and obtain it. So again, this serendipitous kind of relationship I've had with life worked again. Yeah. So you've spent a lot of your career, you've done work in social media, you've studied it, you've written about it, you've talked a lot about gender, uh, and you've talked a lot about race and experiences of women of color. Um, what do you think the stereotypes are that are perpetrated about women um, represented in our media. What do you see happening over and over again? Well, you said we only had about 25 minutes. I so know. No way I <laughs> begin to rattle off. I know. Both the historic and contemporary stereotypes of black women. There's absolutely no, no way. I know. But what I will, what I will say is that from the moment we stepped on the shores, literally, yeah. black women have been couched and stereotyped and boxed into being something um, ultimately negative. And as we have seen the centuries move past 400 years and then um, the ending of slavery, you've seen the stereotypes of black women change, but ultimately they're kind of foundational um, bogle type of stereotypes are still kind of underlaying. Um, and, and what we see now, if we can move to something slightly more positive, is that with the advent of social media, with the advent of something like cable television, with the advent of more, I guess, I guess opportunities and the fragmentation of the channels in which we can communicate, we've seen the ability for black women to move into a space where they can actually show the diversity and the complexity of themselves. Um, I think, you know, when I grew up, you know, I tell my students all the time, we had three television stations, right? Yep. ABC, CBS, NBC, yep. and f everyone fighting for the minute amount of space 
on those channels is incredible. Mm -hmm. And now you have hundreds of television or hundreds of channels and you have streaming services and you have YouTube and you have, you know, a satellite radio, you have podcasts, you have all of this traditional and social media that allow us the ability to tell our stories um, often now unfiltered or at least guided by black women who are writers and producers and directors. And even in the case of, you know, the one and only Oprah Winfrey mm -hmm. network owners, although she's not completely the majority anymore. Um, but the idea here now is that we have a space now to tell our stories. We can control the narrative a little bit more than we have, I think, in the history of um, society. And, and it's, it's a wonderful place to be, but there's way too much work that still needs to be done. That's a really good way to transition to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is how you see social media um, playing a role in activism. Um, you wrote about Black Lives Matter. You've written about Michelle Obama. Uh, what do you, what do you, where do you see social media and activism connecting? Or how do you see so them connecting? Sure, sure. And, and, and as someone who lives, uh, again, in Baltimore, Maryland, I was watching kind of this, the tragedy of, you know, young black men being killed. But when it happened in Baltimore and it happened to Freddie Gray mm -hmm. and literally the protests are, you know, the, the Pennsylvania Avenue kind of center point or North Avenue is two blocks from my house and, and living and seeing and feeling the worry and concern, um, I saw personally um, that social media became this lightning rod for us to be able to communicate. So whether people were organizing on Facebook, you know, whether in the case of the, the, the riot at Mondawmin Mall, which of course is again about, you know, a few blocks away from my house where, you know, the students decided they were going to meet and that post came through Instagram or really what has become the place for activism to really be activated on social media, which is Twitter. Yeah. Um, you can see that social media has given, you know, not just African-Americans, but mostly African-Americans, this space to discuss race, this space to have a center point to come back to, to, to meet and, and create this kind of pathway for resistance and change. All of that comes through because we're not waiting to get on channel, you know, whatever it is that right. we have the ability to culminate our, our ideas and our wants and our interests and our pathways to whatever it is, whether it's a conversation with a politician or it's, you know, the development of a, a plan or it's just a, a, I shouldn't say just, or it's the, uh, a, a march or a, a, um, a meeting. All of that can happen with people across the country in, in seconds through a hashtag. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the incredible nature of what social media um, have done for us. And, and I think we've never been in a place as African Americans to wield uh, a media platform in a way that we could mold it to be what we want. And that's black Twitter. Yeah. Um, and that's any of the other spaces that we, we can find on social media. So I had a, a social movement expert on, and we were talking about um, social media and the use of it. And she was saying that people get hung up in um, assuming that just the tweet is 
is what an activist stance is, which it is. It, it's not to take anything away from that. But she was saying that it's the result of that tweet. So the march that happens afterwards or the group of people that sit down and do contemporary consciousness raising or something like that, that that is the essence of how social media is helping propel forward different um, so, movements. Yes. Yeah, so that's called clicktivism or slacktivism. I did not know that. that. Really? Yes. So there, huh. there's, there's studies and studies about it, clicktivism or slacktivism. Okay. So in other words, you think that you are being an activist because you retweeted, yeah. or you think you're being an activist or armchair activist is another term, mm-hmm. um, because you actually wrote a post and you hashtag and you're like, my work is done, my friends. <laughs> um, and the reality is, is that you need both online and mm-hmm. offline activities to create change. So yes, you could have a million retweets and but what happens with that is often it, and you and I both know this, journalists look to Twitter as really this place to create news or a place to get resources or a place to get sources. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you have to have a culmination of that because if you just use social media alone, you know, you don't have to look at Twitter. People mm-hmm. can just ignore that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go on Facebook. But real change has to happen outside of our CMC or computer mediated communication, right? It has to happen outside of that. So you, that person was 100% in saying that you need both online and offline activities to truly make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to create an, a hashtag like Black Lives Matter, but that was catapulted into a movement because under that hashtag, activities happened. And yeah. those activities happened both online and offline that caught the attention of people who realized that things needed to change. Yeah. I think that that was the power of like, say her name and me too. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is the most effective way, if there if there is an effective way, to use social media for social change? Do you think you think it's that combination of uh, of hashtags or retweets or whatever, and then the actual action? Yeah, and and I think the biggest thing that we learn, um, or I teach in social media, is that you have to have resources and information and you have to have something people can do outside of just a simple hashtag. So for example, is there a website? On this website, are there pillars? Are there events? Are there activities? Are there talking points? Are there things that people can take and do that are concrete that people can say, okay, I did this, but now what more do I, I have to do? Is there a spokesperson for the movement? And we know all about the importance of that. Are there influencers? You know, are there advocates for the movement? Are there people or laws that need to be changed? So there has to be a foundational, you know, a platform and a plan, foundational plan that people who are truly concerned about whatever movement you know, can look at, can read, can understand, and then have a, can have a footprint on what to do next. Because if you just have this kind of hashtag and that's all you have, you will never really truly create change without a plan. And there is something to the influencers too, right? I think that's sometimes why things don't get off the ground if, if, an, if the person pushing it isn't maybe not well known. I don't know if that's the the way to put it, but if the person pushing it isn't, if their story isn't compelling enough, or if they're not accepted publicly, 
then those things tend to falter. I guess I'm trying to figure out what makes something work versus not and um, the impact I, influencers I think, have on that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's definitely an art, not a science, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- that's I what I was that, trying to say. Thank you. That's where I was going. Together, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that if, if, we knew the formula, then there would be no problems in the world, right? We just right. put the formula on top of homelessness and immigration and racism, and then we'd be done, right? Right, right. Um, and so I, I think that it's more of an art, and I think it's about, you know, let's think about um, someone like Reverend Al Sharpton, right, who was involved in the civil rights movement, and today, literally, he's still going strong. He's still making a difference. But he has a network, right? The National Action Network behind him. And he, he has the ideas behind him. And he has the incredible amount of energy to still, you know, carry the voice and, mm-hmm. and, and make change. And I think he is such a unique um, person to be able to say that you've seen decades of dedication for someone like him and the yeah. ability to really still make a difference. So, For me, I think it is definitely having, you know, someone that people can believe in, someone that can be trusted, someone who, you know, may not have all the answers, but is definitely one who looks to that is authentic. Um, And I think that's a part of where we are today with uh, many of our influencers or many of our spokespeople is that, you know, the minute you think this person is great, you know, someone digs up an old tweet, right? Or someone digs up something they did in high school and that person becomes moot mm-hmm. or mute and that becomes problematic. So for me, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things, but, you know, having that person who can go, you know, be a talking head and, and, and share those thoughts and those talking points is, is still a critical part of you and I both know of, of PR and advocacy um, that I think sometimes we're missing in some movements. Mm-hmm. Tarana Burke is a great example of that, right? She she was able to reclaim um, the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and, and, and situate it back under her belt, which was wonderful to see. But she also had then had the opportunity to go on and, and tell that story of what it means um, to be victimized and want to stand forth. So she's another example, I think, of someone, you know, who is an activist, in her bones and is able to carry her message forward, but still has this platform, if you look at her website, of the things she's trying to do. Can you think of any celebrities that you think are following this model or doing a good job with these with these things? You know, I, 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 I want to say um, there are so many people, and I actually just, I'll use the example that, that people won't think I, I would use. Okay. Um, and I just wrote about, <laughs> and it'll be funny. I just, I just wrote about T.I., right? Oh, yeah. And I love to use this example because if you look at his history, right, mm-hmm. someone who, you know, is the trap king and, and someone who would, you know, has a reality television star and all the things that would make someone go, this person can't be a valid you know, social activist, right? You know, there's, 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 why is he credible enough to do anything? But lately, you know, through social media, really, um, he's been affecting change on the things that have been happening in his hometown of Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. You know, people are disrespected in a restaurant and he's coming forward to lead some protests. He's doing some things in the community to help out in terms of, you know, poverty and mentoring. And, And you think to yourself, you know, really? And the answer is, really? You know, he is doing these things, mm-hmm. and, and he might not be the role model that people 
um, look up to, but, you know, for him and the people, you know, in Atlanta and the people that he, you know, can make change with and, and for, I think he's a wonderful example of, of a, of a celebrity and maybe not an A-list celebrity, but definitely someone who has a platform and a history and then the ability to truly say, I'm going to make a change and I'm going to start with my hometown and I'm going to make sure that people hear who I am and, and what I can do. And for that, I applaud him. Yeah. I was thinking about Jaden Smith as you were saying that and the things he's doing with um, bringing water to Flint and he's doing a lot with hunger and homelessness. Um, I think it's nice when we can see folks kind of being these little beacons uh, in these areas. Um, so we're at our last question. Uh, and it's the one that, that I think most people step back and think about for a second. Um, who or or what do you think deserves to be voted most popular? So for me, um, and I'll go back to my Baltimore roots, I was never taught by my mother to be a fan. Um, <laughs> she would always say, you know, all oh, that person's just like me and you. They yeah. just can sing. All oh, that person <laughs> is just like me and you. They're just rich. Oh. And so I was raised by someone who would probably be considered a hater in 2019. <laughs> but her style of parenting taught me to really normalize everyone um, and just recognize them for their talent. But what I will say is while I may not be a Beyonce quote unquote fan, I am a huge admirer of her. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is the most popular for, for bringing voice to the plight of black women is definitely Beyonce. Mm -hmm. um, I did a uh, study, um, as you may know, <laughs> and I looked at her lyrics um, across all of her albums and in that investigation you could see the maturation of her as a woman yeah. and her growth as a feminist and her growth in understanding and respecting and learning about who we are as black women and then suddenly and actually I wrote that a year before Lemonade came out yeah um, and then Lemonade came out and it cemented everything that I thought I mm -hmm. was seeing in her lyrics. And then it's just gotten better and better, um, even down to her Coachella performance and highlighting, you know, the place oh, and the yes. space that I live in every day, which is HBCUs. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, there is just no one better um, who has continued to shine the light on not just black women, but the African-American experience and culture that that you just have to stop and, as she would say, bow down and respect, mm -hmm. you know, who she is and what she's trying to do. Um, and for that, I truly admire her. The When Netflix put the Coachella performance up, I watched it in stages because I didn't want it to end. I just wanted it to keep going forever. So I watched it like somebody would watch like a sitcom. I'd watch for 20 minutes. I'd turn it off, come back to it, watch for 20 minutes, turn it <laughs> off. Because I just, it was, it was so wonderful. Um, it, it, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say what I respected the most about that is the first voice that I heard when I turned that on wasn't even hers. Yeah. Um, and that she reached back and I believe I'm correct in saying that it was Nina Simone, someone I also admire. Mm -hmm. Um, and to hear her voice and let her lay down the, the, the point of it all, mm -hmm. um, was just even more beautiful than anything that followed after that. Um, Tia, thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. And for <laughs> writing in my books and just being such a nice little wonderful beacon 
that I can look to and enjoy your work from afar. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantrier-beanick.com. And if you don't know how to spell my name, the website is linked in episode notes. I am also on Instagram at at dr.adrienetb. That's at dr.adrienetb. As always, 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 thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes, and I will see you.